0: So, this evening, we will start Jeremiah. And I've been on Shabbat going through a number of messages on truth, and how do you tell what truth is, and reality, and those kinds of things. As I've mentioned a number of times, I'm rereading a book by a guy named Yoram Hazoni called The Philosophy of Hebrew Scripture. And he spends a fair amount of time talking about Jeremiah. So some of the insights that I will present are his, and I will try and remember to give him credit as I go. But if I don't, I'm not trying to plagiarize. One of the things he said is modern intellectual thought treats the Bible as a work of faith and it treats philosophy as a work of reason. And the thing that he is saying is, no, that's not correct. The Hebrew scriptures are set up as philosophy, and they are political philosophy in that they talk about how to live, how to tell what's going on, how to organize your society, how to do well as a people. And one of the things that's fascinating is he quoted from a Greek philosopher who I'm not familiar with, older than Plato and Socrates, that basically said he got his inspiration when the goddess took him up to the mountain and showed him wisdom. And modern philosophy doesn't bat an eye at that. But when Jeremiah or Isaiah says, God spoke to me, oh, that's mystical stuff. And that can't be trusted. Anyway, the way I'm going to approach Jeremiah is very much from his perspective, and I've been talking about it for quite some time, that what Jeremiah is talking about is he is talking about a society that's on the verge of going into exile, and he's talking to them and he's telling them the truth, and just like us today in our society, we don't want to hear the truth. The example I used on Shabbat is there's three genders of animals cows, steers, and bulls. You can put lipstick on a steer, but you don't get a cow. And what our society is trying to do is put lipstick on steers and get cows and turn cows into bulls and all that kind of stuff, and it, it just won't work. And they get really, really upset when you tell them it doesn't work, this is insanity. Jeremiah runs into the same problems. He keeps telling them, this is what's going to happen. This is what God's saying. This is what's going to happen if you don't straighten out. And they revile him and yell at him, and it was on Twitter, they'd cancel him. Because they don't want to hear that. So, I want to start Jeremiah in Romans. And the reason I do that is I was listening to Ron Dart today. Coincidence is not a kosher word, right? He was talking about how the church has been co-opted by the society. We have gone away from pushing the things that are true according to scripture, and we have fallen into society's ways, and hence we've lost our way as a church was talking from several places, but one of the places he was talking from was Romans 1. And I thought he had a really good point. And it bears on what we're going to do in Jeremiah. So let's start there. Go down to Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There's your key, suppressing the truth. The idea that unrighteousness hates truth. So the fact that these people are behaving in an unrighteous manner, they need to suppress the truth in order to keep doing it. Verse 19 now. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that are made. So they are without excuse what he's saying is the creation itself witnesses about god and i completely agree with that obviously and anybody who is not blinded by sin so that he wants to do unrighteousness would look at the creation and say yeah this is designed there has to be a creator The idea, then, that these people suppress the truth because they don't want the truth. And as we go down a little bit farther, verse 24, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. What Paul is saying in Romans is similar to what Jeremiah is going to say in his book. Jeremiah is going to talk about it in a slightly different context. But the whole thing here is denial of the truth and ignoring the truth willfully so that you're able to go do what you want to do, which is perverse. So now back to Jeremiah. So I'm in Jeremiah 1.1. 1, 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anatoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the words of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the day of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So in secular time, it's somewhere around 627 B.C. through about 586 B.C. when he was active. Probably longer than 586, because 586 is when the Babylonians took Israel out, and he continued to prophesy after that. He's also a priest, and that is also important. So now, down to verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And the word there is goyin. So he is a prophet to the nations. Now he's going to be talking to Israel, but the message is to the world. Verse 6, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So first thing, we have this repetition, nations and kingdoms. That will, of course, include Israel or Judah and this pluck up and break down destroy and overthrow build and plant the way i see that your mileage may differ but what it speaks to me of is things have become corrupt and it's like the whole garden is overrun by weeds and so what you need to do is get the weeds out and then once you get the weeds out and prepare the soil then you can plant and build that's how i see that metaphor god is looking at especially judah but the world in general and saying this place needs a serious weeding and until the weeding is complete we will not be able to plant and build comment was that commentary that tom's reading speculates that he was about 16 years old when he started and that he was of the priesthood who descended from Eli, and you all of course remember Eli in the book of Samuel had the two sons, Hophni and Phineas, who were corrupt, and because they were corrupt and he did not discipline them, God said that your line will not have an old man forever. So the commentary Tom read speculates that perhaps Jeremiah was a descendant of Eli, and that since he prophesied for about 40 years, and if he were 16 when he started, then he would have only been in his mid-50s when he died. Entirely possible. None of what you said is anything I know, but not arguing with you. And of course, the other part of this is, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, which is to say, God set him up from the beginning. And of course, for those of you who are pro-life, which is all of us, That's one of the texts that gets used when talking to a woman who is considering whether or not she will keep her child, and properly so. So now we're all the way down to verse 11. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. And the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Now, there's a couple of words for almond in Hebrew. This is not lose, which is the one that I often know. This particular word with revocalization means to watch. So he sees an almond branch, and the word used for almond there with different vowel points would be watch. And so what God is showing him metaphorically is that he is watching over his word to perform it. And of course, God explains it to him. The other thing that's interesting here, sort of go off on a slight digression. I am of the opinion, and this is Johnnyology, I'm not the only one who thinks that way, but it's not scripture. I'm of the opinion that when God gave Adam dominion over the place, he never took it back. I mean, Adam became mortal and so forth, but the dominion was never revoked. So, I am of the opinion that in order to get things done on the earth, God has chosen to work through men. And as I've said many times, if he chose to do something else, there's nothing we could do about it. But that seems to be his policy, and he seems to be consistent in it. So one of the things that God will do with Jeremiah and Moses and Isaiah and all the rest of them is he will get them to say things. And the way I understand that is, if you read the Old Testament, like you all do, one of the things that you see over and over again are prophecies about the Messiah. And one of the things that I've said many times, which I believe, is there's nothing new in the New Testament. The New Testament is simply the evidence that the prophecies have been fulfilled. God's word said these things are going to happen. The New Testament is the record of those things happening. And of course, the life and behavior of the Messiah himself. So in the economy that I'm speaking of here, what God needed to do over centuries is to get various prophets to speak the prophecies that would result in the birth of the Messiah. And then when the time for that came, mankind had spoken it into existence quote-unquote it's a clumsy way to say it so one of the things that we're seeing here with jeremiah is instead of telling him things he's asking him what do you see and it doesn't indicate how he's getting these visions that's not indicated other places it is indicated how he gets them but Jeremiah is the one who is speaking the words. God is asking him questions. Jeremiah is then speaking. So Jeremiah's words, once they are spoken, are out there now. And they will have power and effect because God can now use those words that a man has spoken to make things happen. And I said that very carefully. Circle back. If God chose to do something else, there is absolutely nothing we could do about it. This is a policy God seems to follow. It is a policy he himself set up. Nobody set it up for him. Nobody's making him do it. It seems to be the way he works. The comment was that one of the things that we say in the congregation is the words have power, and you would be wise to pay attention to what comes out of your mouth. And I've told lots of stories about that, but... The other thing that's going on here is God uses our words to make his plans come to fruition. Demons try and get us to speak their words for the same reason. So if you go around cursing people, cursing yourself, etc., what you're doing is you are giving demons things to work with in the same way that the prophets are giving God things to work with it's not scripture lots of people think that i'm not the only one this isn't something i invented myself but it isn't scripture so if you don't like it you're free to ignore it verse 13 the word of the lord came to me a second time saying what do you see then i said i see a boiling pot facing away from the north then the lord said to me out of the north and my translation says disaster Ra, 'ah. out of the north evil shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord. And they shall come, and every one shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against all its walls, all around, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgment against them for all their evil in forsaking me." They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. But you, dress yourself for work. And the Hebrew there is gird your loins. But you, dress yourself for work, arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls, against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. Obviously, this is his commission, and one of the things that you'll notice is the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land are all going to be against it. And what we have right now is our government and a great many of the people of the land are against God. For example, the administration in Washington is trying to cut off school lunch funds to Florida because they will not celebrate Pride Month. I sent my dear wife a meme, fireworks display for Pride Month, and it's a picture of Lot fleeing from Sodom as the fire and brimstone come down for heaven. But my point is, the kings and officials and priests are all against the word of the Lord. That's what we're living through. And if you are a governor and you decide you don't want to play in that arena, they'll try and do things like cut off school lunch funds for your state. comment was, homeschooling has doubled since 2020. I'm surprised that it isn't more. And the thing that was the impetus for that, interestingly enough, was COVID. And they started doing online classes and parents were able to watch over their children's shoulders and see what their kids were being taught. And by and large, they started to go ballistic. And there's been two reactions to that. One is parents have gone after school boards and the FBI is going after those parents as terrorists. And then thing two is people are jerking their kids out of school and homeschooling them. As you read Jeremiah, understand that we're living through those times. When it says he's a prophet to the nations, he's talking to us. Because as we go through this, you'll see that we're pretty much doing all the stuff that he gets after Israel for. Chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me, saying... Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love is a bride. Are you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel is holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. So obviously what he's talking about is the Exodus. And Israel followed God into the Exodus without knowing where their next meal was coming from. Israel is also described as the first fruits of his harvest. So the idea there is it was always intended that Israel was going to be a start. And from Israel, God's salvation was going to go out to the whole world. So the idea of Israel being the first fruits of the harvest. And then all who ate of it incurred guilt, which is to say anybody who tried to harm Israel was guilty, and God dealt with them. So early on, when Israel was walking in righteousness, God fought for them against their enemies. Verse 4, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel, thus says the Lord. Now, from here on, Jeremiah is going to go back and forth. By the time we get to Jeremiah 31, 31, which is the new covenant, it's going to be clear he's talking about Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdom. Here, it isn't clear whether he's talking about Israel in the sense of the northern kingdom, which has been in exile now for a hundred and some odd years, or whether he's referring to Jerusalem and Judah as Israel. That's just not clear to me anyway. Verse 5. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me, and went after worthlessness, and became worthless? Obviously this is a rhetorical question. God has treated Israel well. So it's a rhetorical question. What are do wrong? And of course the answer to that is nothing. The problem was them, not him. And they went after, my translation says worthlessness, the Hebrew under there is hevel, which is the name of Adam's second son, Cain and hevel, same word. And what that word means is insubstantial or worthless. It's literally puff of air, nothing. So they went after worthlessness and became worthless. The things that they produced were worthless, And so in that process, they themselves became worthless. Most of your translations of Ecclesiastes will use vanity. Exactly. Same word. Verse 6. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the darkness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a fruitful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me, the prophets prophesied by Baal, and went after things that do not profit. We had hevel worthless, and here we have things that don't profit. Now, one of the things that I mentioned on Shabbat either last week or the week before, probably two weeks ago, and this is according to Hazoni in his book, truth is attached to objects and not words. And the example that I used was a true bridge is a bridge when you look at it and say, that's a bridge. And when you decide to cross it, it in fact safely carries you across the river. So if it does what you expect it to do, then it is a true thing. So a true bridge stands up when you walk on it and carries you safely across the river. The test here is, does it do what you expect it to do? And what he's saying here is the prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit, which is to say things that you can't trust. So what they did when they prophesied by Baal is they prophesied falsehood because their prophecies did not result in things that were beneficial as they expected them to be. So as they're asking Baal for rain, one of the deals with him, he was supposed to be a rain god. So as they're prophesying and asking for rain, he can't give it to them. So they're going after things that are not profitable, and hence they are going after things that are not true in a biblical sense. Because Baal, in other ways, gave them what they thought was a better deal. The worship of Baal allowed things like what we see in your typical Pride parade. So the fact that he wasn't any good at bringing rain, they went after him because he allowed and demanded things that they otherwise wanted to do, which God would not have wanted them to do. The comment was that you'll find a lot of people in today's society that will find a lot of things wrong, quote-unquote, with God. And what I will suggest to you is... The things that they find wrong, they do not want to be bound by. They want to do child sacrifice. They want to fool around. They want to be able to embezzle. They want to be able to do all of this stuff. And this mean, strict God of the Bible says you can't do any of that stuff. So they will find him to be harsh. So they will say, well, an eye for an eye or those kinds of things. What are we all supposed to do? Walk around blind? Okay, tell me how I'm supposed to treat my slaves in a sarcastic tone. Without understanding what's going on, they pick superficial things and say, that doesn't accord to the way we live today. Therefore, this God is a meanie and I don't want to have anything to do with him. And it's based on... A, ignorance in some cases, or B, I really don't want to do the things that he requires of me. We used to be in the Episcopal Church, and it was a ladies' exercise group. We'd get together once a week or something like that. And when the pastor's wife found out we were doing this stuff, she sarcastically asked, well, what's your favorite part of Leviticus? And it could have been just as well, well, what's your favorite part of Numbers? The point is they don't understand Torah and so they mock it and impugn it and go after things that do not profit. And stupidity hurts, but not right away. It often takes years before the effects of your folly catch up with you. And by then it may very well be too late. So we're all the way down to verse 9. Therefore... I will contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. as a nation changed its God, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Here is that word again. What you're going after is things that do not benefit you. Verse 12, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what he's saying here is that they've done two things. Thing one is they've forsaken him. And he describes himself, of course, as the fountain of living water which he is, and that's one of the things that Yeshua says about himself. The second thing they have done is they have substituted the works of their hands for God. The problem, of course, in the desert is you need water. And metaphorically here, we got two sources of water. One, you can attach yourself to the source of living water, which is God, or you can make yourself artificial cisterns and store up what little water there is and keep it against the time of drought, and you are then freed yourself from the requirements and demands of the one who provides living water, because you have now made yourself a source of water. And of course what God says here is, no, these are broken cisterns. So what we're talking about is true and false. A true cistern holds the water that you put in it. A false cistern looks like it should hold water, but does not. So what they have done is they have exchanged that which is true for that which is false. And the metaphor of a cistern, again, is if you build yourself a cistern with a slow leak, you fill it up, and then you depend on it, it'll be a while before you discover that you're out of water. My comment, stupidity hurts, but not right away. That's the metaphor, if you will, of a leaky cistern. There's going to be a comeuppance, but for a while it's going to look like they have water. This is that metaphor of profit. The Torah is a gift, not a shackle. And what it's designed to do is teach you how to live in such a way that you... Thrive and prosper. Walking in Torah is enlightened self-interest. You don't do God any favors by walking in Torah. You benefit yourself. And what these people have done is they have said, we don't want to have anything to do with this God. And so what they've done then is created leaky cisterns or gone after things that don't profit or after things that are false. 14. Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? Why then has he become a prey? I think the metaphor there is that a slave or a homeborn servant is protected by the household. Paul uses of himself that he is a bondservant of Christ. So the idea is that. Israel being a slave, quote unquote, to God or a homeborn servant to God would bring Israel under the protection of God. Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? Why then has he become a prey? In other words, if he were my servant, as he was supposed to be, then nobody would touch him. Remember it said earlier that he is the first fruits, and those who tried to eat of the first fruits, God slapped down. Similar metaphor here. Verse 15, the lions have roared against him, and they have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tophanes have shaved the crown of your head. Memphis and Tophanes are cities in Egypt. Prior to Jeremiah, there were two invasions of Israel by Egypt. And in both cases, the Israelite king was killed or taken captive, hence shaved the head. The commentary I read wasn't sure which one he was talking about. It could have been either of two previous invasions by Egypt. But the point is, if Israel were faithful to God, then that would not have happened. Because God would have fought for them and... Given them the victory. But since Israel had become faithless, God didn't fight for them, and you had the Egyptians shave the crown of their head. Verse 17 Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Now, one of the things that I firmly believe is when you stop walking in Torah, God doesn't need to punish you because you will get into the soup all by yourself things are going to happen to you that are not good for God actively to pick up an empire and said come on go take them out they have gotten to such late stage corruption that God can no longer stand the stench and at that point God will take action but before that he doesn't need to do anything with Egypt Egypt is aggressive all he needs to do is sit back and watch and because they have forsaken him He will not intervene on their behalf, and nature takes its course. Verse 18. And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile, or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Now, this is early in his ministry. Later on, there is going to be a group of Israelites who flee to Egypt, and he will go down there and talk to them as i say this is early in his ministry so i don't think this is that event but the idea here is you don't want to live in the land that god provided you and the reason for that is because the land that god provided you has been laid waste its cities are in ruins and without inhabitant that's back in verse 15 so because of your behavior things have gone to pot and so you want to pick up stakes and go down to egypt drink the waters of the Nile, or go up to Assyria and drink the waters of the Euphrates, which is to say, get out of town. Sort of like all the liberals fleeing San Francisco right now because San Francisco is rapidly becoming unlivable. Unfortunately, when they flee San Francisco, they come to other places and screw it up. As I'm saying, California has sprung massive leaks and the corruption is flooding all over the country. 19. 19. Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. The simple consequences of their actions are, for a while, going to be punishment enough. As God says in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, I keep slapping you upside the head and you don't get the message. Verse 20. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. The idea of the high hill and green trees is pagan worship. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. Remember in Psalm 51, David says, purge me with hyssop. What David is saying is, you, God, clean me up. What Jeremiah is saying here is, your efforts to clean yourself up are going to be ineffective. The only thing that's going to get you cleaned up is going to be me. And the only thing that will allow me to do that is repent and return to me. Verse 23. Verse 23. How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after the Baals. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness, in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her needs weary themselves. In her month, they will find her. Or put it another way, she will find them. Obviously, the metaphor here is to a Animal in heat who is looking to get bread and isn't looking to God, who is her natural husband. twenty five. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. but you said it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. I'm not sure what the metaphor of keeping your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst not sure what that metaphor is but the second half of that verse it is hopeless for i have loved foreigners and after them i will go which is to say i am so far in sin that god will not take me back i have been so bad that he will not forgive me one of the things my dad said late in his life he said i've done things i don't ever expect to be forgiven for my answer to that is what makes you so special because God is in the forgiving business if you truly repent. And so this idea that, well, we're so far gone that there's no point in trying to return, so we might just as well keep going to the pagan temple and having fun. 26. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel will be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth for they have turned their back to me and not their face but in the time of their trouble they say arise and save us and the idea is a thief being shamed when caught in other words when the consequences of your behavior come down upon you i will remember god will remember that instead of turning to me you turn to worthless idols and and we'll see that later in the book as the Babylonians show up and so forth, they cry out to God. And God says, huh, no, not going to do it. But in the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise. If they can save you in your time of trouble, for as many as your cities are your gods of Judah. The idea here is you chose these gods When you get into trouble, have them save you. And of course, obviously, the answer to that is going to be they're unable because they can't, in fact, do anything useful for you. 29. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain I have struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a raving lion. This idea that the consequences of your stupidity ought to get your attention and turn you back to God that's the reason God sort of takes his hands off of you and lets you go so this idea that he has struck your children is there is no profit in what you have chosen to follow and then your own sword devours your prophets which is to say I've sent you prophets and you killed them the ideal of a prophet, is that his prophecies do not come true. And of course, the example for that is Nineveh. When God sends Jonah to Nineveh, and he says, 40 days, it's going to be destroyed. Nineveh repents, and covers himself with sackcloth and sits in ashes, and God relents. So the reason for sending a prophet was successful. So here, God sends prophets to Israel, and instead of listening to them, They kill them. The ultimate example of that, of course, is Yeshua, where God sends a prophet to Israel, and instead of listening to the prophet, they kill him. 31. And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel, or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say, We are free, we will come no more to you. Can a virgin forget her ornaments, or a bride her attire, Yet my people have forgotten me, days without number. Going back to the wilderness example he used, that they followed him into the wilderness. And what they have done is divorced him. He's saying, have I been to Israel, a land of thick darkness? Have I mistreated you? And of course, the metaphorical answer is no. But just like a straying wife, what she has done is used her ornaments to follow the balls 33 how well you direct your course to seek love so that even wicked women you have taught your ways the idea is she is a wayward wife and not only is she a wayward wife she is really skillful at it so she's taught prostitutes how to do it 34 also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in, yet in spite of all these things, you say I'm innocent. Surely his anger is turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying I have not sinned. Obviously, the metaphor is of a wayward wife, and not only is she unfaithful, but she is a murderous criminal. There's skirts are stained with blood and in verse 34 also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor you did not find them breaking in what that's saying is if you remember your Torah if someone is caught in the act of breaking into your house at night and you defend your house and you kill the guy there is no guilt if somebody tries to burglar your house in the middle of the night and you shoot the rascal there's no guilt there and what he's saying here is that isn't what happened here these people were not trying to break in and steal your stuff you just killed them that's what the metaphor is and then of course saying i'm innocent and surely his anger has turned from me what they're again saying and we'll say over and over again as we go through the book is we're god's people surely you won't do this to me We're your people. And God is saying, behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying that. Not only are you sinful, but you are brazen in your sinfulness, and you're saying, I didn't do anything. And we both know that you did. 36. How much you go about changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt, as you were put to shame by Assyria. Remember, Assyria is the one that took out the northern kingdom. And he's saying, Egypt is also going to put you to shame. 37. From it, too, you will come away with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust, and you will not prosper by them. One of the things that's going to happen is they are going to try and make an alliance with Egypt. And that isn't going to work. So what God is saying here is you have been unfaithful, a wayward wife, the chickens are coming home to roost, and saying, who me? What did I do? Is not going to save you. The comment was that he's called the weeping prophet. Much of this is very emotional and poetic. One of the things that it says in the New Testament is don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So the idea that God Expresses himself in emotions serves two purposes. One is it speaks to us in ways that we can relate to emotionally. So when you talk here about the idea of a straying and wayward wife, you can understand that because we live in a society where that happens and you've seen marriages that get broken up with infidelity and so forth. So you get uh, an emotional feel for this. And It also says that God is not cold and impersonal. He is someone who cares for his creation. In fact, Ron Dart wrote a book. It's called The Lonely God. And the idea that one of the reasons he created us is to have somebody to talk to. So when the people that he has done so much for treat him like that, he reacts in a way that expresses emotion and we can understand it